From the outset of the COVID pandemic, few voices have been more trusted than Dr. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's top expert on infectious diseases. But lately, Dr. Fauci has become a subject of controversy, derided by White House officials, even as the Trump campaign uses a clip of him in a TV ad. We'll talk to Dr. Fauci on where the country stands in the war on the virus and his strong views on a push by some inside the administration to promote herd immunity as the solution. And then we'll talk to actor and activist Tim Robbins about a new podcast he's put together satirizing the Trump presidency, all on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Yeah, I uh, won't blame our listeners if uh, they get a bit of a dizzy spell listening to this uh, episode because we're going from the very serious with Dr. Fauci to the very funny with Tim Robbins. But Well, a little comic relief these days is appropriate, I think. Yeah, but it is pretty sobering when you look at the COVID numbers every morning, as a lot of us do, and watching them climb over the past few weeks. I got to say, I did not expect they were going to get as high as they're getting right now. We're, what, at nearly 60,000? On Wednesday, uh, upwards of nearly 40 states are seeing increases in the week-to-week numbers. And all the talk from our president early on about how this was going to wash away seems as distant as ever. Yeah, sobering is right. Uh, So we interviewed Fauci uh, for this uh, Yahoo News live event on uh, Thursday morning as we record this podcast. he was pretty downcast, I got to say. And, you know, he, he's looking at the numbers uh, like, like the rest of us are. And uh, as you say, almost 60,000 one day this week and, you know, at least 50,000, you know, most days and rising. And Fauci has been saying over and over again that he wanted the numbers to be at about 10,000 new cases a day as we head into the winter months. And, you know, we're talking about at least five times that. And that's just, that's scary. I mean, I think it is going to be a very, very tough winter for Americans. And, you know, we'll hear what he has to say about it and if there are any silver linings at all. But it was a bit grim. Yeah. And uh, we will get to talk to him about this great Barrington Declaration that's gotten a lot of um, attention in the um, sort of alt version of the news media, uh, people who you know still are clinging to the idea that maybe this is all overblown, maybe all the measures being taken aren't necessary. 
I got to say, when I first saw it, it struck me that there did appear to be some serious folks who were helping to draft it behind it. Uh, an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School, at Stanford, at Oxford University. But Fauci has some really strong comments to make on it. And um, it's definitely worth paying attention to, to people who are seduced into believing that we can just ignore this pandemic, go back to life as normal, which is sort of what those scientists are suggesting. And we should point out that, that some of those people who seem to have been seduced into believing you know, this concept of herd immunity is the Trump White House, who um, have hinted, you know, that this may be their policy and that they agree with the the Great Barrington uh, Declaration. And Fauci is, you know, masterful at kind of dodging questions. You know, you think he's going to criticize Trump, but you don't really have to read between the lines to know what uh, what he thinks about the direction of, of the administration on some of these questions. And it's a great interview, very revealing in a lot of ways. And Glad to have been able to interview him. Yeah, finally. We've been trying to get him for quite some time. A couple of other matters uh, we should just take note of before we get to Dr. Fauci. The Amy Coney Barrett hearings, we've spent a lot of time on that uh, the other day, and I've you know watched and listened to much of it. It's still striking to me that she seems to be about to sail through uh, without much... Uh, you know, certainly there's been pushback by the Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee, but, uh, you know, I would have expected the demonstrations in the street and uproar about this, if only because of the process of, of a Supreme Court justice being rushed through in the closing weeks of the election. But it does appear that the Democrats are resigned to this is going to happen. And the only real question is... What are they going to do about it if they get back control of the Senate and Biden wins? And that's, of course, a question that Biden continues to avoid answering. Yeah, I look, she's a, she was a very tough target for the Democrats. Uh, she's clearly a very intelligent person and um, she's likable and uh, she was well prepared. I think the Democrats made a decision early on, which was Politically, I think the right decision was shrewd on their part not to go after her personally. You know, there was so much vitriol in the last confirmation hearing with Brett Kavanaugh, which obviously involved allegations of sexual misconduct, and it just got very, very Oh, did you catch where Senator from Hawaii, Mazzy Hirono, actually asked Amy Coney Barrett if she had ever sexually assaulted anybody? or reached a settlement for sexual assault or harassment. Now, she did say that she asked, uh, Hirono said she asked that of every nominee who comes before the Judiciary Committee, but it did strike me as a bit ludicrous when she Yeah, was it's asking. a little like, are you still beating your wife? Yeah, especially uh, kind of given question. that uh, <laughs> Barrett had her family yeah. sitting behind her. It right, right. But look, as, uh, I mean, so, bad you know, taste. Yeah. So this is looks like it's going to sail through. Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the committee, has already set a date for the Judiciary Committee vote on October 22nd, which means they ought to be able to get uh, a vote of the full Senate uh, before November 3rd. You know, I think the Democrats, what they salvaged out of this confirmation hearing is, you know, a, an opportunity to really focus on 
a couple of issues, uh, primarily health care and the fate of the Affordable Care Act in the final days of the presidential election, where that is an issue that really resonates with uh, Democratic voters and and others, uh, moderates and independents, who the Biden campaign wants uh, for this election. So I wouldn't exactly call it a win-win, because I think it's really the Republicans who triumphed here. Yeah, they get uh, control of the Supreme they, Court. They get control of the Supreme Court. <laughs> the solid but the majority. Democrats, yeah. But that's why I said the Democrats kind of salvaged something out of this. And I think they uh, were right not to overreach. They could have overreached um, in this situation, and I think they didn't. And I think that was probably smart. We were going to talk about this uh, bizarre Hunter Biden story, which uh, was broken by the New York Post. Uh, it's caused quite a kerfuffle, to say the least. Basically, a laptop that Hunter Biden supposedly dropped off at a computer repair store in Wilmington. Uh, the repairman, who's a Trump guy, looked at the contents and saw all these purported emails that Hunter Biden had with his uh, Burisma buddies and some of his uh, China co-investors. And uh, nobody knows quite what to make of these emails, if they are indeed real or not. Twitter and Facebook has apparently blocked people who are tweeting the New York Post story, which has caused a huge uproar in Republican circles for censorship by social media, I think at this point we should defer because we don't really know the authenticity of this material, how it came about. I do think that the censorship of the material is is dicey on the part of Twitter's part because you had the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, who was retweeting the New York Post story. House Republicans were retweeting it and had their accounts blocked for doing so. That strikes me as problematic. Yeah, the, for the, these Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you the, know, it is. This is just going to fuel the perception on the right that these social media platforms are are biased against conservatives. And in this particular case, again, we don't know the underlying facts. We don't know if these emails are authentic or not. I have to say it's a little weird that the computer repair person, you know, when they discover these emails, you know, immediately sends it to Rudy Giuliani. That's a little bit uh, uh, suspect. But but just to your point about the kind of censorship of the, of this story and then people who retweeted the story, you know, in, in the Trump administration and, and on the Hill, I, I do think that is really problematic. And I think there's going to be a, a real and I think justifiable backlash against these companies. I mean, I, I'm looking at the Twitter policy explaining why they did this. Uh, and basically, they have a policy against allowing their platform to be used for hacked material. But they say the policy established in 2018 prohibits the use of our service to distribute content obtained without authorization. We don't want to incentivize hacking by allowing okay. Twitter to be used. 
I'm sorry. That is a that is a bullshit explanation because one can. What's the phrase that they say that was obtained without authorization? Well, the New York yeah. Times got Trump's tax returns without authorization. Yet I don't think any of us would dispute that that was important public material. What about the, the Pentagon York, or the Pentagon Papers or Edward Snowden's documents uh, about surveillance? I mean, if you use that standard, you and and applied it across the board, you would be shutting out a lot of important material of of great public interest. And I do want to make a distinction because, you know, we did that Conspiracy Land series, which we popped a month or so ago, about Trump's tweets about uh, Joe Scarborough murdering the former, the staffer who worked for him 19 years ago. And we gave Twitter a hard time for not taking down those tweets. But those tweets were clearly bullshit. There was like no validity to the claims that uh, this woman had been murdered and that Scarborough was somehow responsible for it. We knew the, the answer to the validity of that material. In this case, we don't. And it may be that these uh, emails are, were concocted and are a hoax or they may not be. And, you know, I do think it's a, you know, a little surprising if they were concocted that the Biden campaign and Hunter Biden's lawyer wouldn't be able to come out right out and say that, that these are not real emails. They would know the answer to that. Moreover, the emails that talk about a key meeting that Hunter Biden supposedly set up between the Ukrainian Burisma official and Vice President Biden. The Biden campaign denied it, but then they said, as I understand it, it's not on his official schedule. We can't say for sure that there wasn't any meeting, but if there was, it was cursory. Right. So there's a yeah. there's a you know some wiggle room there. Well, so that did who knows raise a again? Few eyebrows, we we uh, don't certainly. we don't know what happened. Yeah. You know, neither whoever People on both sides of the divide here don't know what happened. But that's all the more reason, you know, not to just... That uh, we should you know, be so, cautious, but, right. but, but you know, let's see more reporting on this and, exactly. uh, and, and get to the bottom of it. All right. We have Dr. Fauci, who's got a lot of really interesting things to say. And then we've got Tim, Tim Robbins. So let's get to it. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Kleidman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News, and welcome to this special live interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. Dr. Fauci, thanks for joining us. Let's start off with where we are right now. You've been warning for some time that there may be a second wave of COVID infections this winter. As many as 40 states have seen increases in cases over the past week. Yesterday, we saw nearly 60,000 cases reported nationally. The Washington Post ran a headline yesterday, next big U.S. coronavirus wave may have begun. Has it? And if so, how long is it going to last? And how bad do you worry it's going to get? Well, Michael, I think we're in a, we're not in a good place. And, and I keep referring when people say that we talk about a second wave. We have never really gotten out of the first wave. If you look at the baseline number of daily infections that we have had over the last several weeks has been around 40,000 per day. It's now gone up to about 50,000 per day. So right away, we have a very unfortunate baseline from which we need to deal. 
And then, as I would have hoped, you know, as I was saying over the previous weeks to months, as you enter the cooler months of the fall and the colder months of the winter, you would like to start that with a very low baseline, well below 10,000 per day. So now we're going into that at 50,000 per day. And as you mentioned correctly, if you look across the country, the number of states, more than 30, are now showing what we call increase in test positivity, which is a pretty good predictor that you're gonna get a surge of cases, which then ultimately will lead to more hospitalization. So we're going into a precarious seasonal situation with people spending more time indoors than outdoors, which is not good at all for a respiratory-borne infection. And then you have these uptick in cases superimposed upon a high baseline. So that's not where I would have wanted us to be. So we've really got to double down. We don't want to lock down. Whenever I say this, people say he wants to shut down the country. Absolutely not. That's off the table. We're not talking about that. We're talking about intensifying some public health measures that are really simple and easy to understand and to do it uniformly as a country instead of in a haphazard way. Dr. Fauci, uh, you said that you thought we needed to be at 10,000 cases a day going into the winter months. Yesterday, we were close to 60,000. How do you explain that we are going so alarmingly in the wrong direction right now? You know, there, there are several things that have gone on. I think if you look across the country at, at, at representative clips about what's going on, we need to have five approaches, uniform wearing of masks, keeping physical distance at least six feet where possible, avoiding congregate settings and crowds, doing things outdoor much more preferentially than indoor, and washing hands frequently. When you see what's going on right now, you see pictures of people congregating in places, in bars, People go to, to, to different functions. And even now we're seeing, because there's so much community spread, that even in simple family settings where you have four, six, or eight people gathering at a dinner, because of the fact that there's so much community spread, people don't appreciate that they may be infected and have no symptoms and then spread it within a family. We've got to get down to the fundamental public health measures. The reason we're going up is that we haven't done that consistently. Take a look at what's gone on over the previous several months when states try to reopen the economy, the open up America again. If it had been done in a uniform way that was prudent and careful, we would not have seen those surges. So what we see is that some cases do it reasonably well, some states do it reasonably well, and others jump over the guideposts and, and the benchmarks of things that need to be done carefully. And then even in some situations in which the states, i.e. the governors and the mayors and others, put out the guidelines correctly, you would see that people in the states would disregard them. There's this issue with masks, that it's become a political issue, whether or not you wear a mask or not. That's, that should not be. This is a public health issue. And the enemy is the virus that's we're trying to suppress, not each other in how we feel about whether or not we should wear a mask or whether or not we should congregate in a big setting where the people are crowded close together. We've all got to pull together in a public health endeavor, not in something that is essentially arguing with each other. I want to 
pick up on your comment about you're not talking about lockdowns, yet you were critical of governors that have opened up their yeah. economies in the last week. So I see a tension there. And I just want to add one more point. Dr. David Nabarro of the World Health Organization, special envoy on COVID this week, said lockdowns just have one consequence that you must never, ever belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. Right. Is he right? So, so yeah, no, but Michael, I'm glad you said that, because what you've done, as I think by by you said it, you know, innocently and inadvertently, mm -hmm. you've created the scene where there's confusion because that and, and, and uh, you know, I'm really glad you did it because you've essentially pinpointed what people think is that there's a lockdown and then there's let it rip, let everything fly, do whatever you want to do. Both of those are not correct. What we're talking about is that you can effectively carefully and prudently open up the economy without locking down because you can get employment going, you can get businesses going and still carefully do things like the wearing of masks, the avoiding of crowded situations. People tend to think understandably but incorrectly that either you're essentially locked down without doing anything or you're doing everything. I discussed this very clearly months and months ago when we used to have the daily White House press conferences. I would say be careful of the all or nothing mentality where people feel either I can't do anything, we stay at home, we lock down, the economy crashes, or we do everything and don't pay attention to public health measures. We've got to get into the mentality that we're going to use careful, prudent public health measures as the mechanism, the gateway or the roadway to opening the economy, not as the obstacle to opening up the economy, but the way that we will open the economy. So we've got to get away from this lockdown, because every time I talk about prudent public health measures, someone says he's talking about locking down the country. I'm not. Let's say it clear. Get that off the table. I'm not talking about that. So, Dr. Fauci, you talked about one of the problems with the trajectory of this virus is that Americans are not sufficiently following the guidance of public health professionals, governors and states. Let's talk a little bit about modeling behavior, because that is really important, particularly from our, our top leaders. So I want to ask you about President Trump. As you watch the footage of Trump's campaign rallies, people not wearing masks, a lot of people crowded in, in together no social distancing. What goes through your mind? I mean, that's a risky situation. I mean, again, people ask me that question, and it often gets that pitting me against the president. Put, put that aside for a moment and just talk generically. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. When you have congregate settings where people are crowded together and virtually no one is wearing a mask, that's a perfect setup to have an outbreak of, of, of acquisition and transmissibility. It's, it's just a public health and scientific fact. We know that. We see that happening over and over again. And you can't run away from the facts. So I'm not trying to point a finger at any particular individual or group. I'm just saying in general, generically, when you do that, 
you are going to be in a risky situation. I don't want um, you to point fingers either, but I do want to ask you, I, I assume you prefer an approach more like Joe Biden's, often wearing a mask when he speaks, talking only in front of a smattering of highly socially distanced people? You know, Daniel, I, 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 this is a trap, you know, because you're, you're putting it into a political context. I prefer one versus the other. I'm not going there. I'm talking generically. You should do things according to good public health guidelines. That means sufficient spacing, uniform wearing of masks, avoiding crowding situation. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are, or what your political party is. So I'm not going for one versus the other. Dr. Fauci, is the White House COVID task force still meeting? And if so, how often? And when's the last time you attended a meeting? Well, you know, uh, Michael, it used to be when in the height of things, when we were concentrating very heavily on the issues of public health, we were meeting, you know, sometimes seven days a week. Then it went down to five. We're down to about, I would say, a consistent one day a week. But in addition to that, we do have what's called a governor's meeting, where certain members of the task force uh, are with the vice president. Uh, we used to do it exclusively in person, but now we're doing it more virtually, where we interact with the governors and answer their questions. And then several of the doctors on the, the task force, led by Dr. Burks, who is the coordinator, myself, Steve Hahn, the commissioner of FDA, Bob Redfield, Seema Verna from CMS, we meet together at least once a week, either by phone or in person. Over the last couple of weeks, because of the degree of infection in the, uh, in the environment of the White House, we've done that mostly virtually. So the short answer to your question is official task force meetings once a week, plus governor meetings and other uh, phone are, calls. Are, are you still invited? Yeah. Yeah. When's the last time you briefed the president? Well, I don't know what you mean by brief. I spoke to the president last week. Uh, you know, I don't want to be talking about the kinds of things you talk to the president of the United States. That's not appropriate. But I did speak to him last week. Dr. Fauci, there were reports at the White House, including Dr. Scott Atlas, one of the president's advisors on the coronavirus task force, may now be embracing herd immunity as a policy and, and may favor the so-called Great Barrington Declaration, under which only people at high risk of dying would be protected from the virus. Do you think herd immunity is a viable strategy for the U.S. to adopt? Yeah, you know, Dan, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'll tell you exactly how I feel about that. That, again, is another trap, because when you talk about the Barrington, the Great Barrington Declaration, what they say in there uh, and then what is implied are two different things. They say, A, we need to protect the vulnerable. I totally agree with that. No problem. That's apple pie and motherhood. The other thing is that you don't want to lock down or close down the country. I certainly agree with that. I just said that. But in there is the implication that if you just let anybody get and, and everybody get infected, don't wear masks, let children get infected, let everybody get infected and just protect the vulnerable, like being really careful in nursing homes and places like that. That doesn't work because in our community, there's maybe a third of the population, depending upon how you figure it, that are vulnerable and would be prone to getting serious complications from COVID-19 disease. 
it is impossible and we've never protected those people in the community. They're not in nursing homes where you can do things in nursing homes. You have the elderly, obese people, people with underlying conditions like heart disease, diabetes, and other conditions. If you let infections rip, as it were, and say, let everybody get infected that's gonna be able to be getting infected, and then we'll have herd immunity, Quite frankly, that is nonsense. And anybody who knows anything about epidemiology will tell you that that is nonsense and very dangerous. Because what will happen is that if you do that, by the time you get to herd immunity, you will have killed a lot of people that would have been avoidable. So, I mean, you've got, I mean, no, there is a certain core group of people that are saying that, but talk at the standard people throughout the country who understand infectious diseases and understand epidemiology, with the exception of the few that you know who we're talking about, they would all vehemently disagree with this idea of just letting everybody getting infected and don't worry about it. Isn't How that the position of Dr. White House maybe open to herd immunity? And have you made your position known on that? My position is known. Dr. Deborah Birx's position is known, and Dr. Bob Redfield. So you have me as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Debbie Birx as the coordinator and a very experienced infectious disease person, the coordinator of the task force, and you have Bob Redfield, who's the director of the CDC. All three of us very clearly are against that. You were a bit in the news last weekend because uh, the Trump campaign used a clip of you in one of their campaign commercials saying, I can't imagine that anybody could be doing more. Two questions about that. Number one, you publicly objected to the ad, but have you directly reached out to the Trump campaign asking them to remove you from it? And number two, you've said that you were taken out of context in that statement. Exactly how so were you taken out of context? Well, Michael, let, let me explain to you why I was concerned about that. As I've said in a statement that I made, an official statement, that I have been in the public health arena and advising six administrations for the last, you know, I've been doing this for the last five decades in, in public service. I have never, ever, either indirectly or directly endorsed a political candidate. And the way that ad went, where they quoted me at the end, it was certainly in the context that looked very much like a political endorsement. And I've assiduously avoided that for so many years, like decades. And that's the reason why I was concerned about that, because I want to stay completely apolitical and stay as a scientist, a physician, and a public health person. At the end of that yeah. clip, they made a statement about it could not have done anything more. We were talking about the task force team that in the beginning, way back when things were really on fire, we were working 24 hours a day, day and night. And in that context, I said, I don't think we could have possibly done anything more. One follow-up to that, as long as we're talking about <laughs> political campaigns. Uh, Senator Harris, last week during her debate with Vice President Pence said, and they knew what was happening and they didn't tell you. Can you imagine if you knew on January 28, as opposed to March 13, what they knew, what you might have done to prepare? They knew and they covered it up. Was there a cover up? 
No, I, I don't know what she meant by they knew. I mean, we were talking about the risks, you know, at that time, really early on, there was virtually no infections in the United States. And we were saying at that particular moment, there wasn't much to do, but be careful because things could change rapidly. I, I wouldn't think that, I mean, I don't see cover up there at all. Dr. Fauci, I wanna ask you very quickly about vaccines. The number of Americans who say they would get vaccinated has steadily declined since the start of the pandemic. And in our latest Yahoo News YouGov poll, only 38% of Americans say they will get vaccinated. How do you explain this? And, and how much of it do you think is because politics is undermining faith in our public health system and scientific consensus? You know, Dan, I, I think it's a combination of things, not one factor alone. I think there had been, you know, a baseline fundamental anti-vaccine feeling among certain members of our society. Then you have a situation where the speed with which we're doing things may be interpreted, misinterpreted by some as thinking it's reckless speed and we're compromising safety and or scientific integrity, and that's just not the case. But then there's something else going on. This entire situation we're in right now with COVID-19 clearly is in the midst of a very divisive society that we see. We see that in the polarization of whether to wear a mask or not wear a mask. In a politically charged season of an election, all of that, people are suspicious that there's political considerations that are going into the development and the and the advertisement of going and getting vaccinated. So people hear mixed signals from authorities in Washington. That's always a bad thing because when the signals are mixed, it confuses people who are trying to figure out what to do. You put all of that together and that's where you get, you know, an unfortunate low percentage of people, relatively speaking, who are saying they're very willing to get a vaccine. What I, what I hope happens, and I think it might, as we get a safe and effective vaccine, which I believe is going to occur towards the end of this year, I had predicted November or December, and people start getting vaccinated, and it's apparent to most of the people in the country that it is safe, there are not serious adverse events, and we're starting to see that it has an impact on the incidence of new infection, that more and more people will feel more comfortable and will get more and more people vaccinated. But right now, you're absolutely correct. There is that concern among a substantial proportion of people about getting vaccinated. Dr. Fauci, one last uh, quick question. There's two big events coming up for people in the next few weeks, uh, Election Day and Thanksgiving. What advice do you have for people about whether it's safe to go to the polls? Will you be doing so yourself or will you be voting by mail? And Thanksgiving, what advice do you have for people as to how they should plan their Thanksgiving? If one does the polling process carefully and prudently, I, I think it would be fine for people to go to the polls who feel that that's something that they wanna do. Some people are reluctant to do that because they don't wanna go out, particularly vulnerable people. For those, you know, mail-in ballots or drop it in a box ballot is, is I think would be fine, but, but in the actual- What are you gonna do? 
You know, I'm going to try to get there physically, uh, Mike. I'm going to try to get there physically, but, you know, my schedule is is not my own. It's in flux. <laughs> if I can't, I'm going to drop it in a box. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to vote for sure, but I'm going to do one of the two, depending upon what's happening at the time. With regard to Thanksgiving, you know, people have to make their individual choice, particularly who you have in your home. Are they vulnerable people? Are they elderly? Are they people with underlying conditions? I mean, it's such a beautiful tradition, Thanksgiving, of getting family together. I, I think we just need to realize that things might be different this year, particularly if you want to have people who are going to be flying in from a place that has a lot of infection. You're going to an airport that might be crowded. You're on a plane. And then to come in, unless you absolutely know that you're not infected, there are many people who are not gonna wanna take that risk. You know, as I've said, and it's public because I've said it multiple times, I have three children that I would love to see over Thanksgiving. They're in three separate parts, triangulated throughout the country. They're adult women, I'd love to see them. They themselves are concerned about getting on a plane, being in an airport, coming in for a couple of days with their father, me, who is in an age group that is vulnerable. And, and they've made the decision that they're not gonna do that. Hopefully by Christmas, that might be different, but right now that was their decision. Each individual family needs to make the decision based upon the risk situation in your own family. Well, Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Stay safe and healthy. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. All right, same here. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me on your show, guys. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. We now have with us Tim Robbins, the actor, director, screenwriter, and the creator of the new podcast series, Babo Supreme. And you got to say Academy Award winner. You always have to say that, Isakoff. That's like, it's like part of his name now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tim, Academy Award winner. Welcome to Skullduggery. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to uh, talk to you. We want to talk to you about Babo Supreme, which is a satire about a president named Babo Supreme. And the sort of official notice I have here, the description of the president is, he is an infantile, narcissistic, lounge singer, game show hosting, narcoleptic racist, an unhinged id running for re-election and unwilling to cede power if he loses. Did you have anybody in particular in mind when you created this character? <laughs> Well, not particularly, no. <laughs> Just a generic infantile narcissistic <laughs> Kind of president. a generic yeah. power guy. Um, yeah. So tell us what the inspiration was for this and uh, what you hope people will take away from it. Well, in 1992, I made this uh, satire called Bob Roberts about uh, ambitious... Uh, millionaire businessman slash entertainer slash beauty pageant fan running for Senate in Pennsylvania. And um, I have always wanted to kind of revisit that character. But as I tried to think about writing a, a, another Bob Roberts, it, it dawned on me that Bob Roberts now would be considered an elegant statesman compared to uh, what we have going on right now in the White House. So I thought in terms of this other character called Ubuwa, the Ubu the King, it's a French character from the 
that I played when I was in my early 20s. And um, it is this kind of unrelenting id, this uh, man without filters, this just, I was interested in exploring what the psyche of all this is. What is what's the dream life of this, this uh, gentleman in the White House? What is, what is the inner child that's screaming out? That, in satire, you have to kind of go far past reality in order to discover a new truth. And T- that's what tough we were to do. Well, I mean, that's, that's a, yeah, I was going to say, uh, Tim, <laughs> I mean, how, how do you go far beyond reality with a president like this when, you know, every moment he's going far beyond reality? <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's a challenge. And so um, here's the thing. If you listen to Bobo Supreme, you'll understand what it is that is beyond what we have in the White House. It's a reflection of it. It's a, uh, it, it's more like what would happen if you were in a dream of it. Um, I, you know, I, I think we all, to a certain extent, think we're in a, a nightmare of, of some kind right now. Uh, but Babo Supreme opens with a dream and ends with a dream. So we're not, we're not really sure whether this is real or it's our own nightmare. I got to say, if the goal here was to go beyond reality... I'm not sure you succeeded. In fact, if anything, you foreshadowed reality. And we've got one clip from it that I want to play because you clearly had done this before the events of last week. But man, you were on top of it. And it's about militia in Michigan that kidnaps state lawmakers. Uh, Mark, do we have that clip? Can we play it? And then we'll get Tim to talk about it. Dress me, paint me, do my hair. You got one minute. Mr. President, the Joint Chiefs are waiting in the Situation Room. The incident in Michigan has escalated overnight. Mm -hmm. Early this morning, we received images of hogtied liberal politicians being held against their will in the Michigan State House. Uh The militias maintained occupancy of the building for the past 24 hours. Mm -hmm. The local police have refused to act. The National Guard is on alert, and you have not recommended any action. What's it called? Sir? The militia. What's it called? First is us, Mr. President. First is us. Oh, that's a good name. Yes, a good name. Not advanced grammatically, but direct. And they like us? Yes, sir. The big supporters. So what's the problem? Well, they've seized a government building, Mr. President. Mm. This is a grave situation. This is something we have to seriously consider as something we haven't seriously considered before. No. This is an actual uprising of armed people. Yeah. People mm-hmm. that love us and support our policies, yes. Mm. But they've seized a government building and are trying to force the democratically elected representatives out of office. And the problem is? These people with the guns were not elected. Elected, sir. Blah, 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 blah. Lots of words. Just like you were arguing about locking up kids. You were wrong about that. So many less kids now, right? Hmm? Less kids trying to get in. So, ha, huh, you talk too much. We have to be careful, sir. This could unleash a beast. Leave them alone. They're patriots. <laughs> so, I got to ask you, what was your reaction last week when you read the news <laughs> that the militia oh, in Michigan was plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan? Yes, um, I was wondering whether they were doing it for us, for publicity. But, um, uh, you know, I think all the signs were there, weren't they, uh, Michael? I mean, this, it was, you know, uh, he was sending out that message uh, pretty early on to his uh, supporters that are white supremacists and these heavily armed guys. And remember Liberate Michigan? Yeah, of course. The, the tweet he sent out? Um, you know, this was <laughs> clearly uh, him wanting to subvert democracy back then. As Babo Supreme progresses, um, we project towards election day and uh, what 
might happen if he does lose and, and uh, what might happen to the White House then. So uh, it's, Do tell. It, it, it's it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give it away, but uh, but I think it, I think it, in writing this, I was just projecting what I saw in front of me, what 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 he was laying the groundwork from from uh, Charlottesville on from the time he came down that uh, escalator on throwing out not only Douglas, but barks full on barks to his base howls. saying <laughs> howls, howls in the night, wolf howls. Yes, uh, basically letting them know that their hatred and their racism and their bigotry is being heard in the White House, is being legitimized by it. And uh, formerly the people that were, uh, you know, had, would keep to themselves with that or have been empowered to express it. And if there's any, you know, illuminating thing about this presidency is that he is exposed to something that might have been hidden before. And uh, I don't know if we should be grateful to him for that, but uh, it certainly makes us more aware of how um, divided the country is and how many people in this country are willing to listen to lies and uh, are willing to accept those lies. Tim, one of the things that you do so well in this uh, podcast series is skewer all of the people around Babo Supreme, the sycophants and the hangers-on. And um, I actually wanted to ask about one character in particular, and, and, and that is uh, Chippy Lou. <laughs> uh, so Chippy Lou is, a, is an orangutan? That's correct. And, uh, and who does... No, uh, no orangutans were harmed in the making of <laughs> okay. this, by the way. I just want you to know that. <laughs> well, when I first started hearing, I thought it was someone was... I thought it was Babo Supreme just burping at, at length, but it turns out it was this orangutan, I guess. Who does Chippy Lou represent? Well, again, this is, you know, it, it, it's not a literal representation of the White House. Chippy Lou is, is my freaking twisted imagination. Um, uh, I imagine that his best friend is an orangutan and uh, he gets, you know, he has conversations with him. He seeks consult from him. He, he seeks, seeks advice. He, he allows Chippy Lou into the into the situation room for meetings with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, Chippy Lou is allowed to express his opinion amongst all, all of the Joint Chiefs. And also he, he shows up in Babo's bed from time to time to, to console him. And one more, who's Dweeb? And I'm not asking you to say who he literally represents, but as a device. Dweeb is a sycophantic, young, balding, special advisor to the president. Who went to Santa Monica uh, High School? Perhaps, yeah. perhaps, <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Jack Black plays Dweeb. And and by the way, the roots of this project, it was supposed to be a movie, correct? That's right. Uh, I was, um, I had written it. Uh, Adam McKay was going to help me try to find financing and then COVID hit. And so everything got shelved and uh, I, I started adapting it immediately to uh, oral format. Wanted to make something that felt like a film in your ears, like something that had was filled out with what a film is filled out with, uh, sound effects and uh, sounds of uh, movement. Uh, I want people to imagine how the White House has been converted into essentially a entertainment studio, the game show set, the morning show set in the Rose Garden, uh, a recording studio, a strip club. You know, he's got it, uh, the White House tricked out to be his dreamland. 
So let's uh, let's get a little serious here. You are a uh, a man of the left. In two thousand, um, you supported uh, Ralph Nader rather than the Democratic candidate Al Gore. In two thousand sixteen, you were a backer of Bernie Sanders. I don't know where you were in the general election, but. You know, there has been a tendency from people of your ilk to uh, shy away from supporting Democratic nope. candidates because they don't go far enough. And so I wanted to get your take on where you are right now and what you are saying to your fellow people of the left about what they need to do in this election. Well, I, I believe the primary process is for a rigorous debate of what the future of the Democratic Party should be and uh, have represented candidates that believe in things that I believe in. But in the general, last time I supported Hillary Clinton and in the general this time I support Joe Biden. I, I think we have to really uh, put, a, put a stop to the hemorrhaging that's happening right now in our body politic and... Uh, I believe that uh, four more years of Trump would would inexorably divide us forever. And Are I, you I, enthusiastic I, about Biden? I am uh, enthusiastic about defeating Trump. And I believe that uh, there's a decency in the man, and uh, he's shown an ability to be able to build coalitions. In the I am not under the illusion that once he's elected, everything will change to my liking and to many millions of people's liking, but I believe he will have at least an open ear to that kind of change. And that's essential in order for us to progress. Uh, Tim, let me ask a follow-up question about a choice you made in the Babo Supreme podcast, which may be informed by your political views. The debate ends up being between Babo Supreme and the third party candidate, a very feisty, tough socialist who destroys Babo Supreme in that in that debate? It was not between Babo Supreme and uh, Mike Toast. Milk, Mike <laughs> Mike Toast, who he calls Milk Toast. So tell me uh, why you decided to do that. Well, because uh, it's it's an example of hubris. Uh, Babo decides to debate the third party candidate because he sees that a certain percentage of his voters are going to that person. And so he figures, well, I'll just get those voters back by kicking this person's ass. And in fact, uh, he winds up flailing and, um, you know, he had been in debate prep for uh, Mike Toast, but he, it was clear in that scene that he really didn't have any strategy. And what, what happens in the debate is that she basically renders him speechless and uh, he, he tries to compensate for that by uh, charging her and trying to attack her. I also thought it was really important to have a woman's voice, mm -hmm. particularly African-American woman's well, voice. Well, I was and, thinking that, especially because of the way he often treats uh, African-American women at you know press conferences, for example. Um, so it did make me think that it was an allusion uh, to that as well. Do you worry at all that when you paint the Babo Supreme slash Trump-like character in such extreme terms, um, not that he doesn't do it to himself, but um, uh, when you try to take it even further, you know, there are millions of Americans that continue to support this guy. 
that believe he expresses something about their view of the world and resistance to political correctness, the establishment, um, the mainstream media, um, the elites that have failed us over the years. You're turning them off and perhaps even driving them further into their commitment to support President Trump. Honestly, I don't think anyone's going to change their opinion from now to the election. I think pretty much everyone's locked in. Uh, I made this to offer um, a way for all of us to deal with this unrelenting negativity and division. Uh, I think it's important Satire and comedy is, is really important for us to gather strength and community from. Resilience. Uh, I think it's really important to um, be able to laugh at times. I mean, we, we, you know, our days are full of doom scrolling and watching the news and it's more and more negative. And I think it's important to offer people a little bit of a respite from this. We're also in a time when... There is no, there is no way to gather in, in a sense of community with other people in a theater, in a concert hall, in movie theaters, and comedy is one way that we can all maybe have a collective community for a few moments and uh, laugh. And in our laughter, we know that we're not insane; that there are other people that believe what we believe, and uh, perhaps that can give us strength when we need it. What were the challenges of putting together a, uh, a podcast like this uh, during uh, an epidemic? Because you had many characters in this uh, podcast, and I'm just kind of curious how you uh, brought them all together. I got, I just called them up on the phone and I asked them if they wanted to do it. It's, uh, it was very challenging. We, had, we were in, there was 35 different locations that we were getting signals from. Um, we had a one central engineer that was, was, you know, trying to, help us through it and uh, record. We, ha- we wanted to do it live. So um, it was a very challenging thing. I mean, there's one person that was in there in a closet, that set their studio up in their closet and put a sign on the outside saying, uh, do not disturb. She said she felt like she was 14 years old again. You know, mom, don't, don't come in the room. I'm doing this podcast, you know. Uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun, though. I mean, it was, you know, it's tough at this time because we're, you know, we don't have the opportunity to work creatively. Uh, it, it was it was really fun to be able to gather and see everyone's face and read through it and record it. So that you you originally conceived this as a movie. Uh, you couldn't do it because of COVID, so it became this podcast. Um, I don't know how the election will affect the shelf life of Bobo Supreme, but uh, might you post COVID try to turn it into a movie? after all? Would love to. I do believe it has a very long shelf life. Uh, I may be wrong, but Bob Roberts is still relevant now. So I'm, I'm, I think, you know, good satire is about getting to a certain truth, illuminating a certain truth that everybody knows is there, but people are too polite to say. Uh, And that truth in this case is... The truth is, the, the, what is this psyche? What is this id? What is uh, getting to what that inner life, inner psychological life, inner torture, inner um, demons? Uh, and again, that's why it's kind of set in a dreamscape. You know, we try to figure out how to 
talk about something that is, is uncomfortable, but also I think there's a certain thing we all know that uh, maybe the satire can illuminate. I've got one question that just occurred to me. Is, is Babo Supreme slash Trump, does he remind you of anybody you encounter or have encountered in Hollywood? Huh. Um, I wouldn't say any particular individual. I would say that we are all capable of this, you know, particularly at this time when everyone's so angry, uh, so divided. We all have that unhinged id in us. I think we all have that tendency towards rage right now. So uh, it would be disingenuous to say it's all those people and not us. I think we have to understand that Babo's id is in all of us. And maybe what our biggest challenge for these times is, is to remember that uh, compassion and empathy are our best friends right now, even though we, that doesn't mean we can't have this in, indignation and this rage. But we have to remind ourselves of that we are human beings and that we shouldn't resort to the same kind of uh, primal behavior as uh, has been exhibited. How did you come up with the name uh, Babo Supreme? Well, I had originally called him Ubu after Ubu Wa, and it was too weird of a name. So uh, I thought of Bob and I thought of Ubu and became Babo. Of course, I remember with Bob from the movie, there was a line about it's Bob if you read it forwards or backwards, <laughs> which I kind of like. Well, also, speaking of Bob, which is actually one of my favorite movies, kind of political satires, you said that it's still relevant today. And I'm just curious, what about it do you think is particularly relevant um, in this in this moment? Because my recollection was, you know, that was in part a movie about the kind of greed in the 19, the Reagan uh, 1980s. Um, so what's what's relevant about that character today? It was also about the appropriation of culture. You know, the idea that um, this folk singer would be singing the songs that he was singing. I, my dad grew up as a, uh, I, I, my dad was a folk singer and uh, I was around that whole scene when I was young. And so, you know, the I guess the inspiration for that happened with when I heard that, I think it was Reagan was playing a Bruce Springsteen song at a rally or something, mm -hmm. and Springsteen got really pissed off about that. Yes, and George he, Will appropriated Bruce Springsteen for the conservative movement, right? And, and Springsteen hated that, right? And and so I um, I thought that that was part of what Bob Bob Roberts was about. It's also about the connection between, you know, uh, money and politics. It's also about attack ads, uh, you know, and as you remember, uh, Bob, Bob Roberts' campaign com uh, accused Gore Vidal's campaign of uh, him having an affair with a, a person that found out, just turned out to be a friend of his daughter's, you know, that kind of sleazy politics uh, is uh, unfortunately still relevant. And uh, times are changing back. Which, which was yeah, the one of, that's one, right. That one was the, the song he sang, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. I forgot about that. The reason I asked you about Hollywood is because it, you know, one of my favorite movies is The Player, which was a brilliant satire of Hollywood, which was um, one of your previous uh, films. So um, you're a satirist across the board. 
Well, that was uh, an amazing film to be part of and you know, learned so much from Robert Altman who directed that and learned not only about satire, but also about how to direct a movie. That was right before I directed Bob Roberts and uh, it was my film school. You know, it was it was funny, Altman, when we were in Cannes and it was this huge success and he would win Best Director and I'd win Best Actor. And, you know, and he, I remember him saying to me, after we had the big grand opening, he said, they like it too much. I think we fucked up. <laughs> well, um, uh, you will, um, you may fuck up again with Bapo Supreme. Uh, <laughs> well, thank which, you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, just tell us now this is available on Patreon, correct? Yes. Somebody asked. We, it's got the, the entire project is self-financed and uh, I'd like to do more of these, uh, this this form this oral cinema kind of form and uh it would be a great way to be able to get into production the next well if you want if you want to without ever having to leave home yeah Yeah, just keep doing it i was gonna say it's a level playing field if you want to satirize political podcasts climate and i are available um we are (laughs) eminently satirizable (laughs) yeah uh but anyway uh so it's how many episodes it's five episodes, and there are two out right now. Actually, two more dropped this morning, and uh, the fifth one comes next week, the big finale. Terrific. Well, uh, here's, to you, here, here's to you fucking up again in exactly the right way. Thanks for having me, you guys, and keep up the good work. Uh, let's, let's get some change going right. on in this country. Thank you. Okay, thanks, thanks for right. joining us. Thanks.